Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you're a teacher, the work you do may not be all that different from the work that a teacher did 70 years ago, at least in the sense that you work in a classroom filled with students. That's also true in many ways for doctors and mail carriers and waiters. But it isn't true for people who drive for Uber or who do odds and ends assigned to them by the website TaskRabbit or deliver takeout that gets ordered on Grubhub. So what's the dividing line between the jobs that have stayed fairly steady and those that are new on the scene? Well, technology, obviously. Except, says historian Lewis Hyman, not really. It's really interesting to me because there's a way in which technology acquires sort of an air of inevitability, that there's nothing that can be done. This is just the future. It's algorithms and futuristic robots. Actually, Hyman argues, American businesses have loved the idea of freelancing for a long time, long before this era of Internet startups and low unemployment rates. And much as we might want to blame tech... Tech doesn't drive change. It consolidates it. And things that you think happened in the last few years that are being driven by apps are really the byproduct of, you know, the rise of a certain kind of service economy that has been insecure increasingly insecure and unequal for quite some time. Which is to say the shift in the economy that we're seeing isn't so much about new gizmos, it's about us and the choices we make. And, Hyman says, it always has been. But that's not how history is often taught. This is the story we're told. It's a story of progress, it's a story of technology, you know, the cotton gin and the steam engine and the railroad. But before all that was made possible, there was a social reorganization of people uh, from their homes into the factories. And the what historians call the Industrious Revolution, which preceded the Industrial Revolution by about 100 years. And, you know, they were weaving textiles. They were, you know, making pots, pottery. And it had nothing to do with technology. It had to do with simply organizing people in a row and watching them. This is where Adam Smith's famous example of pin manufacturing came from, right? It wasn't, you know, the idea of division of labor. So Smith's idea was that if you wanted to churn out pins fast and make more money, you could break down the process into component parts. Each person in the room could get really good at a specific task and just do it over and over all day long. It also enabled people to have a job without really knowing how to make a pin or a piece of pottery from start to finish. Hyman is an associate professor of economic history at Cornell University, and he's the author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. And he says, much in the way that the Industrious Revolution preceded the Industrial Revolution, the Temp Revolution preceded, by quite a lot, the Internet Revolution. So this story really begins after World War II, when the first temp agencies come into being, when the first consultancies really come to the foreground. So here I'm talking about Manpower Incorporated as the forerunner of the temp agency and McKinsey and Company as the forerunner of consultants. And of course, at the same time, the Braceros program, which brought guest workers from Mexico to the U.S. for the very first time. Talk a little bit about Manpower, uh, which is still going strong. It's a company that exists today. But it started in the 1940s, way before we think about the gig economy. Just talk about, like, the guy who started it and what it was hoping to do and sort of how it ended up changing America. So all these different kinds of temp work really were about supporting that 
post-war corporation that was focused on security, focused on stability and long-term jobs. And so the founder of Manpower Incorporated, Elmer Winter, was a lawyer in Milwaukee. And one day he had a crisis where he needed uh, a secretary to type up some legal notes. And he didn't have one. So he called around. He couldn't find somebody. And he realized that this was not a problem. This was an opportunity, like so many entrepreneurs. And so he founded Manpower as a way to supply emergency replacement labor for business executives and for companies. And this was a tremendous growth business. They exploded through the 1950s. By the end of the 1950s, he realized there was a limit to how often secretaries got sick or, Mm. you know, people went on vacation. And he began to imagine a different kind of workforce, a workforce that could come in as needed, that could be a permanently temporary workforce. And yet people didn't do it. And they didn't do it because of a few reasons. They didn't have the experience with it. They trusted the people that they knew. And they didn't quite believe that that was the purpose of the company. The purpose of the company was to provide security, to provide long-term investment, and all the things that are missing in the meaning of the corporation today. So then how did he, how did manpower convince corporations to take that next step, not just, you know, replace somebody while they were having surgery or like you said, like went on vacation, but, um, you know, gee, a lot of your workplace or a lot of the people who work, you know, with you, they're interchangeable. You don't have to like make a full-time commitment to them. What happened was... The first, that there was something called the computer that became really important in the mid-1960s, especially the System 360 by IBM. And corporations were entranced by it. They were entranced by this idea of moving all their paper records to digital records. And, or rather, I guess analog since it was magnetic tape. But this is this, is, this requires a huge amount of work. And so they looked to manpower to make that transition. And they hired you know, shifts and shifts and shifts of women as data entry operators. And they were like, wow, that's amazing. We could just take something that's important to us and then just hire manpower to do it. And they had this experience with outsourcing for the very first time, something that was core to their own business. So this is an experience that lots of corporations are having in the late 1960s. And then comes a huge crisis in 1969, an intellectual crisis for the corporation, where suddenly the conglomerate, which had been the sort of uh, bell of the ball through the 1960s as the sort of you know futuristic way to run a business, all these big conglomerates begin to collapse. And into that gap comes McKinsey and Manpower and other kinds of business gurus selling new ideas on how to organize the firm and, of course, the workforce. Hmm. You said all these women came in uh, when uh, records started getting put onto computers because they knew how to do things. They You could hire them through manpower. Where did these women come from? Like they weren't they weren't working before and then they were working or like where did manpower get these legions of people who I guess were willing to change their lives to start working on computers? There was a rehearsal for our contemporary economy in the post-war and it was done through women, through people of color, through migrants and you know the the people who were deserving of secure work, of respected work 
um, were white men in the post-war. You know, these are the people whose jobs were protected, whose incomes were valued. And for married women, initially in the 1940s, it was married women who were looking to make some extra money. Or at least that's the idea that they were selling at Manpower. Of course, lots of women had to work uh, that were single, even if they were, were married, if they were white women. And of course, African-American women have always worked. But it's this idea of disposability, this idea that you don't have to pay them as much. You don't have to guarantee them secure employment. You don't even have to respect them as anything but cogs in a wheel. And this makes Manpower's business possible. And it becomes a model for how to think about people who can be brought in and do the work next to your regular workers, but also not quite be part of the firm and not quite count as much. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Lewis Hyman, Associate Professor of Economic History at Cornell. He's the author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. One of the questions I always have around this issue of, like, the gig economy, temp workers, is, like, how mainstream is it, the idea of cobbling things together and not having kind of the traditional job with healthcare? And you write, and I found this uh, incredible, quote, in the last 10 years, 94 percent of net new jobs have appeared outside of traditional employment. Already approximately one third of workers, half of young workers, participate in this alternative world of work. So it sounds like you're saying it's a pretty big chunk of the jobs that are coming on the scene now. It's a huge part. It's the place where there are jobs being created. And, you know, it's it's kind of shocking because most people still have as their primary job, about 80 percent of the workforce, as their primary job, just a regular W-2 job where mm -hmm. you have a boss and you go to work. But 80 percent people, 80 percent yeah. like that. So OK. That, the, yeah. Yeah. And then but then a lot of those people supplement it with different kinds of freelancing or gig work. And then there's just a large chunk of young people who are this is how they live. They cobble together. They hustle. They put together lots of different little side gigs. And it's certainly the, the place where the economy is growing. You talk about um, a system that kind of manages this this gig world in a way, um, or that helps to, um, called the Chrono System. And um, I wonder if you will talk a little bit about what that system does. A lot of people probably have not heard of this. Yeah, there's people who have heard of it because they use it every day, and mm -hmm. then there's people with salary jobs who have never heard of it. And it's hard. It is so hard for people with salaries to understand the financial and working lives of shift workers, you know, many, many, you know, about, you know, 30% uh, 30, 30 of the sort of workforce who basically don't know when they're going to work that week. They don't, if you are working at a restaurant, if you're working in retail, you may not know when your shift is going to be that, that week. So how do you plan for, and Kronos is a workforce management tool. It's like a time card, an electronic time card. And what they do is they say, all right, well, when are customers coming into the coffee shop? Well, we'll have most workers then, and we can predict it using software, and that's when we'll schedule them. And those schedules can shift from week to week, depending on what the algorithms say, depending on who has you know, worked a lot in the past week. They want to make sure to keep workers from getting overtime, from even qualifying as full-time workers so they don't have to be paid health care. And this is incredibly disruptive for working people in two ways. The first way is 
they can't plan for another job. So even if they wanted to have another part-time job, this scheduling software is largely one-sided. And, Mm. you know, that is tricky. Um, So they can't plan for another job. They can't plan for childcare. They can't plan for education. So a lot of the things that we say, well, why don't they just get go to school? Well, you can't go to school if you don't know when your shift is right. ever. Right. And the other part of it is the volatility of income. So we talk a lot in this country about income inequality. We talk less about income volatility. And there was this amazing study done uh, a couple years ago by J.P. Morgan, that left-wing bastion of radical thought. <laughs> J.P. Morgan, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they found that for average households, median households in America – a little over half of those households have month-to-month fluctuations of 30% in their income. 30%. So yeah, just try to imagine huge to plan for bills or... Yeah. yeah. And most, the vast majority, about 80% of that fluctuation is driven by shifts. It's driven by whether or not you get paid, uh, whether or not you get enough hours that month. And so... It's just a very different life than most of those who are in the top 20%, the salaried professional class, really experience. And it's it's a very frightening and insecure life. So, you know, we've talked about how um, the gig economy in many ways is not the least bit new, uh, certainly not for women, certainly not for, you know, migrant farm laborers. Um, but but for the population as a whole, it's a bit of a it, it's a bit of a newer thing. Where does where do things go from here? I mean, not not necessarily where you'd want to see them go, but where like looking into the crystal ball, do you think they're really going to be in five, ten, fifteen years? Well, I think whenever the next crisis, economic crisis happens, we're going to see just a wholesale shift. So one of the things you mentioned before was the unemployment rate. And, you know, economists are debating right now over whether we should use that to understand people who don't have work or whether we should understand labor force participation rates. And we know that participation in the labor force has dropped about between 6 and 8 percent since 2008. So there's a whole swath of people who are just not working. And in the next recession, we're going to see that again. And then the jobs are going to be created are freelance jobs. And we're going to have to figure out a way to support people as they enter the workforce to say, look, you're not going to get a traditional job, but you're going to have to find a way to make it work in this new economy. And I think that on the left and the right, in the book, I lay out both a conservative and a liberal approach to this, because I think it's important that there is this nostalgia, but we need to realize that world is gone, but we need to make this world we live in now work for us and not hope for a future that may or may not come. I don't know whether, you know, AI robots are in our future, but I do know that we have income volatility and we have joblessness. And we have also the ways to make that work for people if we just sort of get together and do it. Lewis Hyman is the author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. He's also an associate professor of economic history at Cornell. Lewis, thank you so much. This is great. A real pleasure. Thank you. mentioned near the beginning of our discussion, while many temp workers get low wages, plenty do very well. On our website, we'll have more about temps who love their jobs, love dictating their hours, not having a boss. That's at innovationhub.org. Well, let me tell you something all day.